How is everybody tonight? Praise God. Woo. Crazy people out there. Just like the Corinthians, that's right. All the crazies come out for the Corinthians and the book of Revelation. That's where we show up. So we are in 2 Corinthians. This is part six of this sermon series. We're in chapter three. I'm going to read verses seven through 18. And by God's grace, we're going to get through that tonight. There's lots of powerful stuff in here. I like to cover some ground, but I don't like to rush over anything. So, because it's, uh, you know, the word of God's a meal that should be savored. Do you ever have a meal that it didn't taste good? didn't smell good, it wasn't good for you, kind of eat it quick, right? Like McDonald's, you got to eat it quick before you realize what you're doing to yourself because you'll spit it out, but you eat it quick and then all of a sudden, I shouldn't have done that. But God's word is not like that, so every bit we savor, every morsel of it, there's no filler in God's word, it's all... His living, breathing revelation from cover to cover. Jesus is revealed from Genesis to Revelation. And so as we unpack the word and as we dissect it and as we allow the Holy Spirit to just open it up to us, we're really getting closer to Jesus. And that's why we need to take our time. So, Father, tonight we pray that by the Holy Spirit that exact thing would happen, that you would reveal your son to us in new ways, in deeper ways. We'd get a fresh illumination of who he is and who we are in him. And that when we left this place, we'd be encouraged and filled with truth and principles that would help us to live a life that glorifies you. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name, and I know it's by the power of your word. It's not by uh, the intellect of man or witty preaching or, or uh, any kind of device of the flesh. It's by the Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, have your way in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But if the ministry of death engraved in letters of stone came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness excel in glory. We're talking about covenants here, and, and he's, he's comparing the old and the new, and he's pointing out the glory that's in both of them. Verse 10, for indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom." 
But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Powerful verses, amen. I know you're feeling that even before we kind of unpack it. There's so much in there. Uh, verse 7 starts off, and he, he's comparing covenants. Now, remember in the last session, we noted that Paul was trying to strengthen their faith by strengthening their theology. Good theology will strengthen our faith. Why? Because when we know the truth, it sets us free. When we know what the Word says, we can stand on it. If we don't know, we can be deceived. So he wants to strengthen their theology, and he wants to do it by having them understand covenants and one that was eclipsed and a new covenant that's a better covenant that they stand on. Now, the Corinthians were getting huge blessings and benefits here from the new covenant, and Paul wanted them to see that. Now, the early church was primarily made up of Jews. The Jewish people were the early converts that populated the church. Paul went first to the Jews, Salvation is of the Jews. It's first for the Jew, then the Greek. Amen. So Gentiles, we're number two on the line. And you say, well, now we're number one. No, God has not abandoned his people. He still loves the Jewish people. He still has a remnant among them, and he will come back for them. And the Bible says when the church is removed, God will focus once again on Israel as the apple of his eye, and in a day, all of Israel will be saved. Come on, someone get excited about that. That our Jewish brothers and sisters are not cut off and lost. God keeps covenant with them. So here's this church, and it's made of Jewish converts here. And Paul, <laughs> Paul went to the Jews first, and some of them did get saved, but he had a very limited success in converting them. Why? Because they needed a transition from the covenant that they were in, which was legalism and rule-keeping and ceremonialism, and, and they were having a hard time letting it go. So Paul has limited success, and God releases him. From that, he went to them first. Then he's released, what? To focus on the Gentiles. And boy, does God anoint Paul to reach the Gentiles because uh, he begins to bring them in and the early church is flooded with them. And those who were cut off and not connected to God, uh, they were, you know, there was only one way to get connected. You had to be a Jew in covenant. But now the Gentiles are being saved. And all of us are here because of that. We should get excited about that because if God didn't graciously open it up to us, we would still be lost in our sin and our idolatry and disconnected from God. So the Jews only knew the Mosaic Law Covenant. They knew the rule-keeping, the ritual, the legalism. It's all they'd ever known. So they had a big struggle completely abandoning that and embracing faith and grace. Those concepts were a little strange to them. And your heart's got to go out to them because, you know, if somebody pulled out the rug from us spiritually, theo the theologically, and just said, all right, everything's changing now, because it was changing for them, I'm not sure a lot of us would have an easy time abandoning grace and going to something else. Well, it's back to legalism. No, 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 no. We want grace. No, grace is done. No. So put yourself in their shoes and, and have compassion there. Uh, Paul drives home the idea of the new covenant 
of being far superior to the old one. In fact, it's eclipsing and replacing the old one at every point. And uh, the, new co- the old covenant, the law covenant, the Ten Commandments, has a very limited role in our world today. And Romans 3, 19 and 20 articulate the, the only role that the Ten Commandments still have. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What's the point of the Old Testament, the the Mosaic law covenant? What's the point of the Ten Commandments? For us to try to keep them and realize we can't. To convict us of the very fact that we are sinners, that we cannot be righteous in our own strength, that we need a Savior and we need grace. If you try and keep the Ten Commandments, you you know, take a day off and... From grace and try and, you know, I mean, I don't know, most of us wouldn't make it past nine o'clock. And that's if we got up at 830. So all the law does is show us that, well, I never broke that commandment. But if you're guilty of one, if you ever lied, if you ever stole, if you ever cheated, if you ever lusted, you're guilty of the whole law. So what's the purpose of the covenant that's been eclipsed? Well, it's just to bring us to the knowledge of sin. That last line that Paul writes there in Romans 10, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I know I'm a sinner because I can't help myself from sinning. Verse 7 sounds a bit dramatic as Paul refers to the function of the old covenant as the ministry of death. Now, look at that. But if this ministry of death engraved in letters on stone, it it sounds cold, uh, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses. We're going to dig into that a little bit. Because of the glory on his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more glorious or glory? Uh, However, it's conjugated there. But Uh, You know, this whole thing, the ministry of death, that sounds dark, it sounds depressing, and it almost sounds like Paul's being dramatic. Um, the, The point of him calling the old covenant the ministry of death was because of this fact, that it was impossible to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, yet keeping them perfectly was exactly what God required. Think about that. Well, God, I can't do it. I know, but that's what I require. But, you know, I'm, I'm good in this one, but I keep breaking that one. Well, you got to keep them all or you're guilty of breaking the whole law. The, the, the Ten Commandments were a ministry of death. Why? Because they, they had to be kept perfectly, and man in his weakness and in the weakness of his flesh couldn't do that. Do you know the failure rate for Old Testament saints uh, attempting to please the Lord by keeping the Ten Commandments was exactly 100%. 100% failure rate. Everyone under the covenant. Well, not Moses, not, you know, uh, not Aaron, not, you know, not, not all these, not David, uh, all of them. A hundred percent failure rate. Would you be comfortable with something? Uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try this, but no one's ever succeeded before. You know, I like those people who say, you know, tell me I can't do it and I'll do it twice. Most of the time they do it nuns. But it was a 100% failure rate. 
In fact, all of the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, Aaron, all of them, when they died, they did not go in the presence of God. They went to Abraham's bosom, a holding place outside of heaven. You say, why? They're the Old Testament saints. They're the patriarchs. They're, they're the pillars that led to the, yeah, but they all had a sin problem that never got dealt with. And even though they tried to please the Lord and they did the things of God and they laid the groundwork for the New Testament church, I mean, you know, without, without the Old Testament patriarchs, there is no New Testament church. So understand, 100% failure rate, and all of them wound up not going into God's presence, but going into Abraham's bosom. Why? Because they had to wait for the cross to actually happen. The thing that saved them was that they died in faith looking forward towards the cross, and God counted it unto them as righteousness. But, they, but that righteousness would, could not be imputed until Jesus actually died and his blood was actually spilled and the power of sin was actually broken. So they had to wait. All of them. Where did Jesus go when he descended and he, he, he led captivity free? He went to Abraham's bosom and he got all the righteous dead and he took them out of that holding place outside the presence of God and he marched them into heaven as a victory parade of first fruits. Amen. It's awesome. I hope you get to watch that on the big screen in heaven, you know. They it's like pulling out the old movies, you know. Lord, we want to see that. All right, all right. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. We're going to watch it. But understand this whole idea of one covenant eclipsing another and people dying, looking forward towards the cross and all the implications here. That's why Paul calls it, you know, the ministry of death. It's not dramatic. It's absolutely accurate. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, the scripture says, amen. A hundred percent failure rate. Nobody was able to keep the law. Now, the second point of verse 7 is that even though this covenant was brutal in that it was unattainable for us, it still had glory associated with it. He said that the old covenant had glory. From our perspective, the old covenant stinks because we can't keep it. And no matter how hard we try, we're going to break it and we're going to be guilty and we're going to fail. So from our perspective, the Old Testament has no glory to it, but it does have glory, and here's why. The weakness of the Old Covenant had nothing to do with God, his poor design, his poor planning. The covenant was weak because the weakness of our sinful flesh. The problem was and always still is with us. God didn't make a bum covenant. It's just that we couldn't keep it. And you say, well, why was there glory still associated with it? Because God's desire for man to keep the law and to be holy and to, and to approach him in holiness is a beautiful thing, and it has glory to it. God asking us to keep the law and to stay away from sin was a great idea. Yeah. It's just that we couldn't do it. And he knew it, but he had a plan. Aren't you glad that God had a plan? Yeah. Amen. God could have said, well, I gave you a chance, and you couldn't do it. Sorry. That's it. And you know what? Everybody's going, no, 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 no. That would have been completely just. God had no obligation to make it possible for us to please him. 
So there was glory in him asking us to keep the law. Why? Because he's a holy God. So it's totally just for him to ask us to be holy. It's just that we couldn't do it. So he sent Jesus to make us holy by the redeeming power of his blood. Amen. Let's look at verse 8. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? So he's making the case that the law is unattainable, yet the law covenant had glory. Uh, we, we couldn't keep it. It had a 100% failure rate. But how much more glory is associated with the new covenant, the grace covenant? Because the grace covenant never fails, and here's why. Because it's built on the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Got to get this. God stepped in and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Think about that. You know, he, he said, all right, you, you couldn't keep the law. You couldn't, you, you, you couldn't keep, you know, the Abrahamic covenant. You couldn't keep any covenant I cut with you. So I'm going to step in, and I'm going to send my son to die in your place and actually keep the covenant for you and then impute that righteousness to you through the, the blood of the Lamb. It's just amazing. Now, for us, it's a little easier to understand this. In fact, you know, some of you are looking confused, but most of you are getting it. But to the Jews, this was like a, a huge hurdle for them to get, and they, they had a hard time. Verses 9 through 11 drive this concept home. For the, if the ministry of condemnation has glory, so there again, he's speaking about the old covenant in kind of, uh, you know, terms that paint it for what it is. Uh, if, if that old ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness excel in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory. So he's saying, even though the old covenant had glory, now it has no glory. Why? Because the glory that surpasses it. I want you to get this, verse 11. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more with that remains is glory. So the old covenant had glory in it because it was God's design and it was a good design. But it is now faded away and surpassed because it's eclipsed by the new covenant. There, are, I, I said before, and I'll say it again, the only function of the Ten Commandments at this point is to show us that we're sinners. And once we become convinced of that, we can repent of our sin and receive Jesus, and then we're under grace, and there's no more condemnation over us. Amen. So check out this gem from verse 10. What had glory in this case has no glory. As with all things in life, the new thing makes the old thing obsolete. Don't you like when they invent new things that are actually good? And, and I say that because of this, because they invent a lot of new things that aren't good. Do you see what these idiots did to the gas can? Come on, guys who use gas. And they ruined the gas can, Pastor Mike. You can't even buy one that you can pour anymore. It's got all these contraptions on it and filters and the hoses and it breaks and it spills all over you. We made a new one. It's better. It's safer. It's eco-friendly. You can hug a tree while you blow yourself up. They always make, a lot of times they make new stuff that's not better than the old stuff. It's just that they made something new because they want your money. They want you to buy the new thing. But New stuff, that's better than the old stuff, is awesome. Nobody wants an old phone. Nobody wants an old computer. You remember those old computers, those giant monstrosities, those screens? Nobody wants an old camera. Do you remember the cameras we had? 
They were like bricks. They were huge. They had to put film in them and bring it to get developed. The young people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Who remembers the old TVs with that big thing growing out of the back? We had an old TV like that, Tim. Somebody came to visit us. They were watching TV with us. They, they gave us a TV. They looked at our TV, and they're like, we got a, we got a TV for you. And l- later on, they told us they gave it to us because they felt sorry for us. But we, we didn't know. You know, it was that. that but you know, none of us want to go back to that stuff, the old stuff, the, the stuff that was slower, that didn't work as good. No, and, and that's the attitude we, we have to have in Christ, as we go forward and we go deeper into the things of God, we shouldn't want to go backwards. Backsliding is never a good idea. Oh, well, I, you know, the nostalgia of the good old days. I remember the, the good old days when we used to just sing hymns and blah, 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 blah. These are the good old days. Right now, amen. Because you and I are here on purpose for such a time as this. And there's no going back. So Paul's telling the, the Jews that are struggling, he's like, you know, the old covenant's passed away. It's fading away. It's eclipsed by the new covenant. The new thing is better than the old thing. And every time God does a new thing, it's better than the old thing. Paul credits his boldness in preaching because he's excited about the covenant that they have. He believes in the product that he's selling. You know, if you have a, somebody come to your house to sell you something, you could tell that they don't like it or they don't really think it works. You know, the vacuum salesman, he don't really want to dump that stuff on your carpet because he knows it ain't coming out. Christians got to believe in what we're bringing to the world. We got to believe in the gospel, amen, to the point where, you know, we're excited about it. Paul was excited about the message, the gospel. He says, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We believe in this new covenant. It's awesome. Paul knew the old covenant inside out and backwards. He was a Pharisee. He was a scholar. He knew all about the law. In fact, as a, as a Pharisee, he kept it perfectly, he said, outwardly. And then he says, we're excited about this new thing, and that's why we're so bold. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. You and I should be bold in bringing the gospel to this world, amen? The gospel is the good news. The gospel, uh, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation, amen? I pray that we would get excited about the gospel. Because you know what? God expects us to share it. Well, nobody wants to hear it. You know, it's just going to make trouble. Everybody knows by now. They could go online and get the gospel. Why do I got to tell them? They're just going to be mad at me. They're probably going to cancel me. (laughs) Did you ever feel like that sometimes? I've been around people, ungodly people, people that, you know, just by listening to their language for a few minutes, you could tell they were probably not open to the gospel. And I'm thinking, they don't want to hear this. They don't want to, you know, here I am. Look, at I'm going to, And the devil does that, and he talks us out of it. Do you know some of the loudest, nastiest, most vulgar people are this close to getting saved? Sometimes it's the vulgar ones that, you know, they're, they're, they're just like going all out because they've exhausted everything else, and they're like, this must be it. But they're looking for the truth. 
We've got to share the gospel like Paul did with enthusiasm, with boldness, with excitement. Now, I'm preaching to me just as much as I'm preaching to anybody else because I know it's a tough world out there. I remember when I first got saved, sharing the gospel was pretty easy. And, and going down in the city, Pastor Mike, we, we'd pass out tracts. People would get saved. We'd do street dramas. People would get saved. I mean, it, there, was a, there was an open window, an open season for a while. But the world has gotten hard now. It's gotten hard. And there's more animosity towards Christians. There's vitriol towards, you know, people of faith. So I, I get it, but, you know, we still have to be excited. Why? Well, well, things have changed, Pastor, but the gospel hasn't. It's still the power of God unto salvation. And so we should be excited about it. Verse 13 is an interesting reference to the way Moses handled a little distraction that occurred. And uh, I'll read it to you. He says, we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. Let, let me, if you're not getting that, let me explain it to you. When Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, he was in the presence of the Lord to the point where the glory of God hit him, the Shekinah glory of God hit him, and it actually changed his countenance. Now, we don't have any pictures of this. There's no footage, but his face was actually glowing to the point when he came down the mountain, they were scared of him. And they were staring at him, and they were freaked out by him. You know, if I was up here and all the lights were off and my face was glowing, <laughs> I'd be scared of me. But the older I get, the more I don't want just cover it up, veil it, put it under a veil. So he's saying, we're not like Moses. Why? Because Moses' face was showing because he had just been in the, you know, kind of just in the afterwash of God's presence, and boom, his countenance changed. That's how holy God is, Amen. You, you can't go in his presence without it changing you. And so he comes down, and he's freaking everybody out, and they're staring at him so he would wear a veil over his face, you know, so he could go about his business. You know, he had to go shopping. He had to get some matzah. He had to, he had to do something. So he veiled his face to take away from the distraction of the Shekinah glory of God that was on his countenance. Moses covered himself up. Paul says, we're not covering anything up. Check this out. He put a veil over his face and the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains uh, because it was removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Talking about the Jewish people here. We're going to look at that a little bit. You know, as much as things were covered up in the Old Testament because things were passing away, now we need to uncover the glory of God that's in us, that light that shines in the darkness, amen? We don't need to put a, a you know, a, a basket or a bushel over the lampstand. We need to let the light of the gospel shine, amen? Because it's not passing away. It's what we need to bring to the world. So Paul's making all these illustrations. Some of them they're getting. Some of them we're getting. We're, we're understanding this. He has boldness about this new covenant. He's excited about it. Moses had to cover himself up because he was a distraction. That, that thing was passing away. Uh, verses 14 through uh, 16, they reference the state of spiritual blindness that hang over those who refuse to believe. And that's what I was talking about there, the veil over their face when Moses is read. And there are 
people, and this is directed at the Jews at that time, but it's also for every unbeliever who refuses the gospel. It's a veil over their face. It's their eyes covered. It's their ears plugged up. It's their hearts darkened. And, and why? Because unbelief will do that. The imagery, hardened minds, veiled faces, things that obscure uh, the, 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 the freedom that the gospel would b- bring and cause people to miss it. Jesus' arrival tore the veil in half. When Jesus died and he went and he said, it's finished, the veil, what in the Holy of Holies, was torn in two from top to bottom. It's not about veils anymore. It's about, you know, access to the Father, relationship restored. So hardened minds, veiled faces, and that, that's uh, an, an illustration. It's kind of an image of spiritual blindness, and that's a very real problem for all those who've chosen not to believe. Now, the Scripture teaches us that the Jews didn't receive Messiah, and they rejected Jesus the first time, but the second time at his second coming, they are going to receive him, and, and God has not quit on them, but those people who are Gentiles who just refuse Christ and reject the gospel, there's a veil over their eyes too. Do you ever see people who are under the veil, you know, and uh, they, they just couldn't seem to see what was obvious to you spiritually? Verse 15 alludes to the fact that unbelief makes the scriptures unrecognizable with hardened hearts. I always marvel at the fact that people, even Christians sometimes, can't see the plain truth. There's people that sit in churches that say they're Christians and they can't see the plain truth on obvious issues of morality, of marriage, of gender, of abortion. And, and oh, we're Christians, and we, we, we got our shout on, and we know how to praise, and we, we, you know, we have a hoedown in church, woo! But you can't see the obvious truth. You don't have a biblical worldview, and it always, it, it, it scrambles my mind. What is that all about? It's a veil of unbelief. And somewhere there's a hardness of heart in even those people who say they're Christians where they just fail to believe the truth and that root inside them rejects truth. Don't get impressed when someone says, I'm a Christian. Let them prove it. Test the spirits. That's the way the Bible puts it. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Let them prove it. Let let them prove it by the way they live. Let them prove it by the way they recognize what is righteous, what is holy, and and where they fall on, you know, certain issues. Now, I'm not talking about fine points of Scripture and eschatology and, well, they they don't believe in the rapture, so they're they're from the devil. No. (laughs) I'm talking about basic, obvious truths. So that, I, that I listed, morality, marriage, gender, you know, the, the right to life. These are good indicators that there's a veil. These same people never seem to land on the right side of any issues. Whatever is right, they're against it. Whatever's wrong, they're for it. Have you seen people like this? I mean, just in our nation, just in our state? Everything that is godly, they're against it. They don't even know why they're against it. Someone told them this, someone told them that, and they're against it. No, no, no. And it just boggles the mind. It's that veil that 
Paul was talking about. And it's deception. And the, the way to reverse that is to come to Jesus and have him open up those blinded eyes and remove the veil. Verse 16 shows us the remedy, and here's what it is. You know, like, oh, these people, they, they can't tell their right hand from their left. They can't fall on the right side of any issues. They, they can't stand for righteousness or morality. They, they're given to sexual immorality and fornication and all kinds of, you know, it's all messed up. What's the answer, Lord? But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Mm. Turning to the Lord is the only way to open blinded eyes. Turning to the Lord is the only way to land on the right side of any issue, to get God's will and to put it above our own opinions, our own uh, ideas, and to just say, you know, this is what the word of God says. This is what the spirit of the Lord says. This is what I believe. The veil gets taken away when people come to the Lord. And verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. And that's what we got to understand. People who are spiritually blind, whether they call themselves Christians or not, when they can't land on the right side of any issues, uh, understand something. They are blind, they are deceived, but they are also in bondage. See, the spirit of the Lord, what brings liberty, brings freedom. And every place that we we reject the Lord, where we reject truth, where we reject the word, it brings bondage. But freedom comes when we acknowledge the Lord and we submit to his ways. So unbelief is the issue, and unbelief is a problem. Remember, the only way to be Delivered from unbelief is to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, to be filled with Christ, to have our minds renewed, amen? Amen. Remember that transforming in the kingdom of God is actually us being conformed to the image of Christ. God's job is not to build a better version of Rick, not to build a better version of Pastor Mike or Gucci, God's job is to strip us down and make us in the image of Christ. Amen. A better me, the best model of me, the deluxe model of me, is still a sinner, still going to hell, and still can't tell what's right and wrong, doesn't know my right hand. Do you understand? So... That veil, the unbelief, all that, the remedy is Jesus. And forever, if we're stuck, if we are confused, if we can't land on the right spots here and and agree with God, then we've got to come to him and let him save us and bring us freedom. Uh, Verse 18, I'll just close with reading it, and then we're done. But we all with unveiled faces look as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and being transformed, there it is, into the same image, Jesus' image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So there it is. We have to be conformed. We have to be transformed, and we can be delivered from bondage to freedom if we'll let Jesus be Lord. Let's bow our heads. Amen. Father, I just thank you for the word. I thank you for the crazy Corinthians, Lord, and, and all of these principles that Paul is sharing with them that are such a blessing to us thousands of years later. We thank you that your word is alive, Lord God. And Father, we, we want to be 
pleasing to you, but we realize we can't do it by keeping the law. We want to uh, satisfy the requirements of the law, but we're, we're guaranteed a 100% failure rate. So God, we embrace grace. And Father, help us who are Gentiles, who were never under the Mosaic Covenant, but we get saved and then become legalistic. God, remove every trace of legalism from your people. Help us to understand grace, but not to abuse it, to embrace righteousness and holiness, to allow you to transform us into the image of Jesus, to let go of our lives and lose them so we can find them. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.